Greetings again, everyone. John had a unique relationship with Jesus Christ. In a sense, he was a favorite. They had a deep camaraderie. John, you recall, is the one who had his head lying on Christ's shoulder at the very Last Supper when Jesus gave him a sop and pointed out who was going to betray him. John and Peter were the two of the disciples who, after Jesus Christ had been resurrected and just before he was taken up to heaven, were there in a very interesting conversation about the future. Jesus had made Peter confess his love toward him three different times, each time using a different word, asking him, Do you like me a little, Peter? And Peter said, Of course I like you, Lord. And then, well, do you love me, Peter? Well, of course I love you. And then, do you really love me, Peter? Using different Greek words that meant varying degrees of love. And finally, embarrassed and chagrined because of his denials, his cursing denials of Jesus Christ prior to Christ's crucifixion, Peter was so embarrassed he must have been beside himself. And each time he protested and confessed his love to Jesus, Christ said, Feed my sheep. And then at the conclusion of the book of John, the Gospel of John, in verse 18 of chapter 21, Jesus told Peter, Verily I say unto you, when you were young, you'd put on your clothes and walk wherever you wanted to. But when you are old, you will stretch forth your hands, and another will gird you. Somebody else is going to have to put your clothes on you and dress you. You'll be unable to yourself and carry you whither you wish they wouldn't. This spake he, signifying by what death he, Peter, should glorify God. Ponder that for a minute if you would. You and I haven't the faintest idea where Peter was killed. Tradition says Rome, but we can't really prove that. We don't have any idea whether he was in Rome or over in Babylon or some other city or town in between. Tradition says he was crucified upside down, trying to make his crucifixion even more abominable and detestable than that which Christ underwent himself. There is no real proof of that, to my knowledge, at all in history. Yet it says that his death glorified God. There had to be an immediate audience. There had to be some constituted authority involved, either the Roman authority or perhaps some other nation, or a combination thereof. But the point is that Peter was told right then and there that eventually, by the time he was very elderly and perhaps blind, seemingly implied here, maybe through persecution or maybe through age, we are not told, that he would be a martyr for the name of Jesus Christ, and that that death of martyrdom would, in fact, glorify God. God saw it. Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father saw it. They heard every word. They empathized. They understood every little bit of agony or pain or suffering that Peter was to endure. And it was to glorify God that Peter gave a final testimony somewhere, somehow, to someone. And then Peter, turning about, seeing the disciple whom Jesus loved following, which also leaned on his breast at supper, said, Lord which is he that betrays thee, Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, what shall this man do? Verse 21 and verse 20 and 21 of chapter 21 of the book of John. And Jesus said, If I will, if I decide that he should live or tarry till I come, what difference does that make to you? You follow me, showing that Peter had his own road to hoe, so to speak, his own life to live, his own personal, private destiny, and that his destiny had nothing to do with that of John. Each had his own destiny that was to be cut out for them, something Christ wanted them to do. Then went this saying abroad among the brethren that the disciples should not die. Yet Jesus did not say he will not die, but if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple which testified of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, John lived to a ripe old age. He lived to see the death of Mary, who went to live with him at Christ's instruction as Christ was dying on the stake, and said, Son, behold your mother, and mother, behold your son. 
No doubt John knew before he died of the ultimate either death or life or where the people moved to of all of the siblings of Jesus Christ, of Joseph and Judas and of the others, including James, of Simon, and perhaps several of the girls. He knew whether they married and whether they had children. But now as an aged gentleman, perhaps up in his 90s, having outlived Peter by at least 22 or 3 years, John is given a great vision, and the book of Revelation is that vision that he wrote. And he saw something that involves you and I sitting here on the shores of Lake Palestine in East Texas today. He was portrayed, or that is conveyed, mentally, spiritually, forward into time, into the time called the tribulation, the heavenly signs, the day of the Lord, the time of God's intervention on this earth. In the 20th chapter, he defines some great events that he saw, begins to explain them. He sees an angel coming down from heaven, having a key of an abyss or a bottomless pit, as it's called symbolically in chapter 20 and verse 1, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years and cast him into an empty, endless, bottomless pit or an abyss, and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should no more deceive the nations till the thousand years should be fulfilled, and after that he must be loosed a little season. And then he sees thrones, like platforms with thrones or positions of rulership, obviously waiting for kings to be seated upon them. I saw thrones, and then he saw people, beings, coming forward, turning around, and being seated, wearing a crown, and the regal robes and holding a scepter, perhaps, that connoted kingship. And they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. It doesn't mean that suddenly they were given wisdom and judgment and discretion, but they are now given the power to judge and to rule. That judgment and wisdom was given earlier, and of course, something they had accumulated during their lifetimes, as well as God's judgment that was added at the resurrection. And I saw the souls, Greek word suke means lives, but it is now those who are once again alive and who died. So whoever they were, they were beings who died. I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God. Two things. The witness of Jesus is what? It is the witness not about Jesus, not witnessing that Jesus is Jesus, but the witness that he brought, the message that he brought, the gospel, the message of the coming kingdom of God, of all that Jesus Christ did, who and what he was, all of his sufferings, his great lonely lifetime sacrifice, his death, burial, and resurrection, his testimony, his prophecies of Matthew 24 all embodied in the witness of Jesus and for the Word of God. That's all the Word of God, because those who beheaded these people hated both the witness of Jesus and the Word of God. And they hated the individuals who bore that witness and who believed and obeyed that Word. They hated those individuals so badly that they lopped off their heads. Now that's one of the ugliest words in the human language, virtually. Those that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus. The only time you and I think about in history, we remember from high school or college about people being beheaded, was during the French Revolution. And we remember perhaps at the Place de la Concorde in front of the Louvre and how the guillotine was very busy. And we know that in the day of the overthrow of that government of France, that there were tens of thousands eventually who went to the guillotine. We don't think so much of other beheadings, except perhaps one we read of in the Bible. One that was a very close, even a family relative of Jesus Christ, who when Jesus and John were both in the wombs, those babes leapt for joy, and the two mothers blessed each other, the Holy Spirit inspiring them to say what they did, because John the Baptist, who was to fulfill the position of the Elijah that was to come, was to suffer the horrifying death of being beheaded. But these are people who are to be seating on, uh, sitting on thrones at the same time as the great resurrection of the dead in Christ, and they are to be beheaded. 
Who are these people? Under what circumstances are they beheaded? When does it or did it occur? How many of them are there? We're not told right here. But also there's something else we're told about. Not only are they beheaded by some sort of constituted authority, either political, religious, or military, or a combination of all three, not only are they beheaded by this constituted authority for the witness of Jesus because they preached it, because they conveyed it, proclaimed it, but also because of the Word of God, which they believed and obeyed, and which they preached, and which they stood with, and stuck with, and continued in. But there's something more. And which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and ruled with Christ a thousand years. How did they get there? How did John see them standing on this translucent sea of glass with these many thrones, turning around, being seated with their kingly robes and their crown and their scepter? Some of them because originally, though we see them now as a complete being, shining in righteous, white, translucent and white robes and garments, and hair snowy white perhaps, and the very visage, of the family of God that is portrayed in the first chapters, we see the picture of the returning Jesus Christ of Nazareth. But formerly, their heads and their bodies may have even been buried in separate places. These are individuals who suffered a horrifying death. Let's turn back a few chapters in the book of Revelation to the 16th chapter. It says, as John now sees a great voice out of heaven talking about the seven angels who have the vials of the wrath of God that is so pent up and ready to be poured out upon sinning mankind, that the first angel goes, verse 2, and pours out his vial upon the earth, and there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast, and upon them which worshipped his image. When I was in Austin... A few weeks ago, I preached a sermon about those who resist to overcome and win the victory over the beast, the mark of the beast, the image of the beast, the number of his name. Let's turn to the 15th chapter, just one chapter back, and look at the two opposites here. Those who do worship the beast, receive his mark, worship his image, are going to suffer the seven last plagues. They are object of God's righteous wrath. He hates what they stand for, and they are going to suffer excruciating pain, not just death. This is a noisome and grievous sore. It's like thousands or hundreds or whatever of pustules and carbuncles. It is something not unlike what Job suffered when Satan the devil caused him to be suffering with carbuncles from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. And God is pouring out a noisome, grievous sore upon these men which fills them with pain from the top of their head to the bottom of their feet, because they worship the beast, receive his number and his mark, and worship the image of the beast. Chapter 15, John says, I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plague, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. Now, why would God be angry? Why is God up to here, the way it shows in the Bible, with wrath and barely able to contain it? Well, because of what you read every single day in your newspapers, because of what you can go see tonight on CNN, what you can see on every morning telecast, what you can read in every newspaper or news magazine you pick up, because of brutality, because of murder, because of serial killings, because of divorce and desertion, because of child abuse, because of pornography, because of rape because of drug abuse, because of everything from all of the human physical appetites and habits that are attempting to be satiated by every kind of illegal foreign substance or chemical that man has ever been able to concoct, or any weed he's ever been able to discover, to dry, to cure, and to light fire to and draw it into his lungs, or hold it under his lip, or perhaps ingest it into his nose, or put it in his ear, or wherever else he rubs it upon his body. And because of sin, and sin, as it is in so many manifold ways today, characterized by God as saying they proclaim their sin as Sodom, they hide it not. Tomorrow, 
on the day of Solus Invictus, the day of the, of the sun, the day of the sun god, there will be preachers, and I have, am hard put to uh, keep from saying this without some sort of a wry grimace on my face, who will mince up to the platform or the pulpit, who are avowed homosexuals, queers. I like to say that because they hate me to say that, so I like to say queers. Queers, what they are, queers. And these queers are going to be up there preaching to a lot of other queers. And they call that religion. But they must have had churches in Sodom. Now, God tells you what he thinks about Sodom over there in the book of Genesis when he burnt it with divine fire, just like a nuclear explosion, and absolutely obliterated every one of them, including Lot's wife, who yearned and looked back and thought, well, I'm part and parcel of my society, and Sodom wasn't so bad, and I kind of liked the little delicatessen down around the corner, like the school where my daughters went to school, even though the teachers were all a bunch of lesbians. You know, she liked it there. She was comfortable there. And so Jesus said, remember Lot's wife. Oh, we could go through five or ten sermons and not even begin to really express the wrath of God and why he is wrathful and why he is up to here with what human beings are doing to each other. Because God just can hardly stand it any further. And his wrath is finally going to be poured out, as it says, without admixture in the cup of his indignation. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire. That's like the beautiful refraction or reflection of light that would come through pure crystal. It's a sea of translucent material like onyx or perhaps quartz or something, right before the throne of God. And here is this great multitude standing there. And they are standing there, and they are characterized as people who have gotten the victory over the beast. Pause for a moment. Question. I've asked this question to the same audience before. When, where, and how in the last year of your life did you get the victory over the beast? You probably are utterly unaware of any particular moment in time, any legal maneuver you had to go through, any letter you had to write, any particular check you had to write, any particular thing you had to do involving your property or your automobile, or the school your children attend, or involving your financial, uh, perhaps, pension plan, or your Social Security check, or the government, or whatever. When and where and how are you aware, in the past ten years, of having said to yourself on your knees in prayer before God, thank you, Lord, for helping me get the victory over this obnoxious, wretched system, this, this beast. I say that we generally are not aware of that. And over his image. Now, I gave them a sermon down there that I told them if I keep talking this way, someday I'm probably going to get myself killed and let me express why I said what I did. Because if you will keep your place there and turn to the 13th chapter of the book of Revelation right quickly, and let me remind you of many, many articles we've written over the many years going through the first creatures that you see here in the 13th chapter, which actually are the most powerful parts of the four beasts of the seventh chapter of the book of Daniel, which represent the four successive world-ruling empires of Babylon, which was like a lion. Isaiah's prophecies continually talked about the lion that would come out of the thicket from the north into Palestine to take the Jews captive. And so we see this strange beast rising up out of the sea, meaning multitudes of people having seven heads and ten horns, and there were to be these various governments. And those final ten horns we see in the 17th chapter are the ten kings who are going to fight Christ at his coming. So they are either present, just about to develop, or immediate future. Those ten final kings are in the immediate future. And upon his horns, ten crowns, a symbol of government. And upon those heads, a name that is obnoxious and is blasphemous to God. You can't take something which is a politico-religious union, and call it holy. Something that is the most powerful killing organization equipped with nuclear and chemical and biological weapons that is able to wage warfare and to kill millions of human beings in one fell swoop and then put the name holy upon it. Now, most of you in this audience may or may not be aware of the fact that Pope Pius XII actually 
either put his hands upon or put a crown upon. I forget that detail of the history. Benito Mussolini and said that what Mussolini had put together with his invasion of Ethiopia, Eritrea, and Italian Somaliland, and the building of the huge Italian fleet, the British took care of in the Gulf of Taranto on one sensational attack. But nevertheless, when Mussolini was really the great military power of Italy before Hitler had really come to power in the early 1930s, and dubbed what Mussolini had put together as the Holy Roman Empire. It was so-called. I have a big, thick book at home that gives the headlines and just a little potpourri of the articles of every single day, of every single month, going all the way back into the 1930s and before. So I'm able to look up the headlines on the day I was born. Nothing much happened that day, by the way, and I didn't even make the newspapers, but there it is, you know, that particular day in history. And you can go back and read of those things. You can go to public libraries. You can go get issues of Liberty Magazine or Time or Life or Newsweek back in the 1930s, and some of those magazines will actually give you the articles. You can look it up in Reader's Guide in the public library and go back and read about the Holy Roman Empire of Mussolini's day. So it has the name of Holy upon it. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and the leopard characterized the kingdom of Greco-Macedonia, of Alexander the Great. And his feet were as the feet of a bear that characterized Persia. And his mouth is the mouth of a lion that characterized Babylon. And the dragon, Satan the devil, as you read in verse 9 of the preceding chapter, gave him his power and his seat and great authority because of the devil's influence, because he is able to move on human minds, because he is able with his cohorts, the millions, countless perhaps numbers of them, of demons, to influence human beings in high positions. And I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death, and the deadly wound was healed. In 476, Rome fell. In 554, it was reestablished. General Belisarius was sent to Carthage, to northern Africa, to some of the southern provinces of Italy, and it was reconstituted as the Holy Roman Empire. And all the world wondered after the beast, and they worshipped the dragon, and perhaps not directly. It is devil worship, Satan worship, but it's... It is pseudo-Christian worship because it is the worship of a counterfeit, so-called Christian system, Satan masquerading as Christ, as the Apostle Paul said, if the devil himself is, appears like Christ, it is no wonder that his ministers appear as Christian ministers. They worship the dragon, which gave power unto the beast, and they worship the beast. They worship that political, religious, and military system saying, Who is like unto the beast? Now, in your lifetime and mine, at least those of you that are my age and not too much younger, who can remember World War II, many here cannot, you have seen in your lifetime, as I have, frenzied state worship. They are showing endless documentaries on A&E and on Discovery and on all of these other channels on cable. If you have cable where you live, it just seems like interminably they're showing World War II snippets and vignettes and so on. And I have a whole library of tapes at home of World War II. And you will see pictures of Adolf Hitler standing upright in a huge Mercedes-Benz convertible limousine going through the streets of some of the German cities, and women there with bouquets of flowers with a look of absolute ecstasy, adoration, adulation, of worship on their faces. Women fainted in his presence. When you see those huge Nuremberg rallies, when you see some of those gigantic staged uh, marches and rallies of torchlight parades that the Nazis threw of hundreds of thousands of people in his huge outdoor pavilions and stadiums with all of these torchlights and the banners and a regalia and so on, of the bands playing away and people virtually fainting for joy, you were seeing state worship. They worship the dragon and they worship the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? He is the top super power, the greatest military power the world has ever known. And that is not the United States, but another power that is even now emerging inside Central Europe with Germany at its helm. And there was given unto him a mouth, and a spokesperson, that mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. Elsewhere, in the fourth chapter, seventh chapter, rather, of the book of Daniel, it talks about thinking to change times and laws. That great mouthpiece, we will see in a moment, 
is called a little horn in the book of Daniel that actually overthrew the Ostrogoths, the Vandals, and the Heruli, and is able to use the practice of interdiction by which he can cause a populace to actually riot against an incumbent government and lead to the overthrow of government in countries that are dominated by that great universal church called the Roman Catholic Church. Therefore, the Pope has the power to seat or to unseat rulers from Peru to Argentina and from Uruguay to France. He has that power, and popes have exercised that power in the past. And they have exercised that power in our time in the last few years. If you read the newsstand issue of Time magazine only about three weeks ago, then you read the expose of the secret deal between President Reagan and Pope John Paul II when President Reagan worked with the Pope to keep alive solidarity inside Poland during those years when Lech Walesa was in jail. And that with secretly smuggled CIA money, your tax dollars and mine, which went through such nations as Finland and some of the other neutral Scandinavian countries, I say neutral, but who were involved in trade with and therefore goods and things could flow back and forth from those countries into the Soviet Union. But all sorts of telecommunications equipment, printing presses, fax machines, all kinds of equipment which actually aided and abetted communication in and between people all over the nation of Poland, and it was actually done through and by the Roman Catholic Church, the clerics in the churches hid a lot of the equipment. They were complicit in actually importing it and putting it into the hands of the workers who were a part of solidarity. And as I told our people in a live audience in Jekyll Island in 1978 when Carol Wojtyla became the Pope, I knew he would be like an iron bar to pry the communist grip loose from Poland, and that would be the beginning of Eastern Europe coming out from behind the Iron Curtain that I've talked about for 30-some years and that Eastern Europe would be a part of the United States of Europe and would not any longer dwell behind an iron curtain under the Soviet domination. As recently then as the Reagan administration, there was a secret deal, secret phone calls, secret meetings between two heads of state. The Pope is a head of state. This defines him, describes him, as a little horn with an eye, or with a mouth, and with eyes speaking great things. It's a little government, but it is a government. And all other governments send their ambassadors to the Vatican. And the Vatican sends its ambassadors to all other governments. There is an ambassador from the Vatican to the United States, to Great Britain, to Germany, to France, to Poland. And there are ambassadors from Britain and France and Germany and the United States over in the Vatican. And they have diplomatic relations back and forth, though we are dealing here with a church. So it's a church state, isn't it? It is a government, isn't it? It operates just like a government, doesn't it? It has its own bank. And you ought to read some of the details about that bank and trading with the enemy and some of the incredible stock scandals that have taken place, and about a man who is still very high in that bank named Mr. Marcinkus. You ought to read about the Vatican Bank. It is incredible the power that church wields. Now, I asked this question once before, and I will repeat it briefly. Who today is the most revered, the most charismatic, the most popular, and the most well-known human figure on the face of this earth? It is not Gorbachev. It is certainly not George Bush. It is not Mr. Yeltsin. And you'll run quickly out of names if you try to think about naming the premiers and vice presidents and ministers and so on. It is not John Majors. Who is it? Well, you all know. It's the Pope. That man has traveled more widely, has reached vaster audiences, and is locked in the hearts and is revered and worshipped by more human beings than, get this, any other man in the history of the world. Because of mass communications, because of global satellites, because of telecommunication, like on Easter or on Christmas, the Pope can be heard by 50 million ecstatic Catholics all over the world at the same time. He can command audiences bigger than the Super Bowl. And he can speak great things. 
and he can unseat governments, and he can set up governments because he has that power. So there was given, verse 5, a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and power is given unto him to continue for three and a half years. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. This is an antichrist, a blasphemous human being who is masquerading as a representative of Jesus Christ. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints. <gasps> How can that be? When we all know that we're reading in the 13th chapter of Revelation. And we all know, and all good Baptists know, and all good Methodists know, and all people who believe in the rapture know, that long before the great tribulation, all the saints have been raptured up to heaven. And they're not here anymore. Then comes the tribulation. And then comes these great plagues. Here is this great being who is going to suffer the day of the Lord, the wrath of God, the seven last plagues, and he is allowed to make war with the saints. Where are the saints? Right there on this earth where he can get at them. No matter what rapturists and other theorists think, no matter what people think who thought that perhaps the church was going to creep away to the Jordanian desert and hide out in caves, no matter what anyone thinks about the church sitting on the sidelines watching the world in the throes of the Great Tribulation and the Day of the Lord as mere spectators somewhere, saying, give it to them, God, but we're not involved. Was Peter involved? Was he involved in something that led to constituted authority causing his death? Which Jesus Christ said, glorified God. Was Daniel involved well, Daniel lived right at the seat of government of Babylon during the time of the Jewish captivity and during the time eventually of that nighttime overthrow of the Babylonian Empire, and his lifetime transcended that of five separate kings of Babylon. Daniel ran the whole country for seven years, while Nebuchadnezzar, unbeknownst to the population, was rooting around like a hog in the backyard, digging with weeds, digging for weeds with his nose, acting like an insane animal. And his hair grew down to about here, and the hair of his body grew, and his old fingernails were all broken from rooting around in the garbage. And they probably slopped him every now and then, like he'd slop a hog. They'd say, feed old Neb. And they'd throw things out the back window of the palace wall. He'd come rooting around there, and they stayed away from him. They thought he could kill him. He might have been carrying terrible diseases. Nebuchadnezzar was utterly raving insane for seven years, and Daniel ran the government. Daniel was right in the thick of things, wasn't he? Now, where, where was Jeremiah? Well, Jeremiah was given diplomatic immunity when he told the leaders of that country that they were going to go into captivity, and the very people who came in and pillaged and looted and sacked and destroyed the country gave Jeremiah permission to go with Gedaliah to Egypt, and eventually he escaped with Teotepi, the daughter of the king. Where were God's prophets? They were right where the action was. They were right there where the witness needed to be given. The apostle Paul had converts in the private household servants of Nero Caesar. And the Apostle Paul eventually was killed. It was given unto him to make war with the saints. Put your name in right there. Are you a saint? Do you want to be a saint? Do you want to be in God's kingdom? Do you think there's going to be any struggle involved? Do you think there's going to be any fight involved? Do you think it's going to be difficult at some time or another? Or are we going to be able to just enjoy life and come week after week to services and live our weekday lives and do the things that we do and listen to the announcement, oh, I must remember to pray for this dear person or that, and send out a card or a letter and enjoy the potluck and get the recipe ready for the chili cook-off and go to the Feast of Tabernacles and fight our own personal battles of health and problems that sometimes take us into the hospital for surgery or some kind of treatment. And then eventually we grow old. You know, my grandmother perhaps had it fairly nice. But yet on retrospect, I think, did she really? She was born the year after Abraham Lincoln was shot. She grew up on a farm where Indians would come and beg coffee and, and uh, salt and sugar and so on. And her father 
would give them those things because he was afraid of them. And she would tell me when I was a boy how they always rode single file. And the old grandma would tell me about those Indians. She loved to talk about her girlhood back in the 1860s and the 1870s. And she lived to take her first flight in a Douglas DC-3 at age 80 for her birthday up in Portland, Oregon at her daughter's home where I was at age 16 and have that on film. Interesting. We saw that when I was out visiting my sister Beverly only a couple of weeks ago. Saw that 80th birthday of my grandmother with all of us little kids running around when I was 16. Crazy. And my grandmother lived to be 96 and a half. But you know, she lost her beloved husband that she loved so dearly. She called him Harry, though his name was Horace. He died when I was five. And she, of course, saw one of her sons stricken with meningitis. She saw other deaths in the near and distant family. And she had various health problems, nothing really serious, though. And she lived to be 86 and a half, and she actually had her Bible on her lap and put her reading glasses down, was sitting in a rocking chair, and leaned back and went to sleep and didn't wake up. How nice it would be to be able to go that way. Is that what is in store for everyone? Is that the answer we would get if we had been there when Peter became curious about John. Peter didn't want to hear what Jesus told him. Peter, when you were a young man, you just got into whatever clothes you wanted to, and you decided to go fishing, you decided to go hiking, you decided to go up the creek, you decided to go over the other mountain and see what was there. You decided to go visit a couple of the relatives. But when you're old, you're going to have to put out your hands because you won't be able to see. Somebody else is going to dress you, and hands are going to lead you where you wish they wouldn't. And then he asked about John. Let's ask about us. It was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations, and all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life. If your name is written there, you will not worship the beast, receive his mark, or worship his image. If it is not written there, the chances are you will. If any man has an ear to hear, let him hear. He that leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He that kills with a sword must be killed with a sword. That is the patience and the faith of the saints, meaning God is just, God is righteous, God will repay, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the eternal. That is the patience and the faith of the saints. God will take care of the situation eventually. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb. He looked lamb-like, so he masquerades like Christ. And he spake as a dragon. He speaks with the forked tongue of Satan, the devil. And he exercises all the power, the military power, the economic power, the industrial power of the first beast before him and causes the earth and them which dwell therein to worship. When you cause to worship, you then concoct a method of worship. You have a liturgy. You have priests and orders, you have buildings, you have a method, a routine, some preachments of some sort to tell people how to worship. So he causes all of these state-worshipping people to worship the beast whose deadly wound was healed. And he, this great false being that is depicted as a little horn that has eyes and a mouth speaking great things in the book of Daniel, does great wonders so that he makes fire come down from heaven on earth in the sight of men and deceives them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast. Now, if you will read the articles that appeared many, many years ago, and we've repeated them in past years, perhaps we need a new one now, and you understand that the Roman Catholic hierarchy that gradually developed as priests became metropolitans and metropolitans became patriarchs and patriarchs finally through attrition and warfare and internecine fighting became one man known as the Pope. And at many times there were pseudo-popes and two and three popes at a time that were busily excommunicating each other, and that's all in history, and you can prove it. There has never been a so-called succession, and in any event, Jesus Christ never said that an apostleship is a succession from a man to his son or from one man to another man. Jesus Christ of Nazareth gave apostleships to the original apostles, but did not authorize them to pass it on down anywhere. There is no succession implied. So, 
we have here then the image of the beast, a great religious organization which was organized according to the old Roman collegia, having greater and lesser dioceses, and then parishes. There aren't counties across that Red River over there. Those aren't counties in Louisiana. No, those are parishes. We aren't aware of who rules over which diocese, or even which diocese this is, are we? Are you aware of the Archbishop of New York and his diocese? If you look up the exact order and the method of the government of ancient Rome, you will find an exact copy, a counterpart in the Roman Catholic Church. It is governed in the same way. It is a copy. It is therefore an image. It looks lamb-like, but it speaks as if from Satan the devil. As I go through some of these things, I tell people one of these days I'm going to get around to preaching a strong sermon. And when I do, I'm liable to get myself killed. It says here that he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. Has that ever happened in history? You ought to read Fox's Book of Martyrs. You ought to read about the Spanish Inquisition. For some reason, some of the great artists of Europe, and some of them are on view in the El Escorial, which is the place of the burial of kings just outside of Madrid, near that huge big basilica carved out of the heart of a mountain, only about a 30-mile drive or so outside the city limits. And there, as you come down the stairway, are sometimes paintings almost as big as the portion of the wall behind me that are showing human beings being skinned alive. Artists were always using church themes during those days, and some of them depicted in very grotesque fashion the tortures that went on at the behest of the Roman Catholic Church as they put to death countless Vaudois, Valdensians, Peter Waldo's followers, and anyone they could find who worshipped the Sabbath, worshipped God on the Sabbath, who kept the annual holy days, who kept the Passover instead of observing Easter, as they were commanded to do in 325, when the edict came down from that little horn that has eyes and a mouth speaking great things, it said, Christians shall no further be found Judaizing by observing Pash or Pesach on the 14th of Nisan. And that quarter of decimal controversy raged for over a century and more, and it was never really put out because it is still alive and well today, where people are observing the Lord's Supper or as we call it, the Passover, perhaps erroneously, and the very same evening that Jesus himself observed it and changed those symbols. So we see here an image, an exact copy, and it is a government, but it's a religious government, that causes those who will not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he causes all, he is using, remember, the state and its power and authority, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand, that symbolizes willingness, it symbolizes agreement, it symbolizes acceptance. Is it eventually an actual tattoo or the insertion of some kind of a computer microchip? That's possible. I don't rule that out. But it is obvious, and my article on the subject makes it very clear, as do all the scriptures on the subject, and there are very many of them right here in the book of Revelation, that this is not an involuntary something that you cannot lose salvation by five great big jack-booted men holding you down if you're a little suffering old lady at 76 and performing some kind of a terrible operation and inserting a computer chip onto the skin of your forehead. That doesn't lose you salvation. You don't lose salvation because somebody holds your hand and inserts some kind of a chip or puts a tattoo on it like they did the inmates of the torture camps, the death camps in World War II on their forearms. They did that. They held their arms, they put a tattoo on them, and many of them are still alive and can show it to you today. It shows here that it's a matter of worship. It's either a matter of rejection and of clinging to God, the testimony of Christ and the Word of God, or it is a matter of accepting this false worship and going along with it. So it is voluntary, not involuntary. It requires a decision on our part that no man it says, might buy or sell, say that he had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now, those who have fought this system in which we live and understand the extent 
in this country of ours to which the entire economy is based upon a theology inherited from the Roman Catholic Church that has been accepted by all of the little daughters who came out of her in protest that are called harlots in the Bible, the harlot daughters who protested against the great waddling madam of the house who is the great whore described in the 17th chapter of Revelation. And that great whore adopted Sunday, Solus Invictus, and the symbol of the X, crux, or cross. And, of course, in many, many movies, the priest will always grab a cross and he will hold it up as the influence of the devil is there. If they're going to excoriate or ex somehow expunge or uh, cause a demon to uh, depart a person, well, then they will hold up the symbol of the cross. How many movies have there been where that has occurred? And you see that all the steeples that have an interesting uh, history behind them are decorated with a cross upon them. And, of course, many, many people wear crosses. They have them dangling from a chain in their automobile. They've got St. Christopher's on the dashboard. They've got them dangling from their ears. They've got them more, they're on pendants or on rings. They're all over the place. They're over the door where people enter. And it might as well be a sign, all ye who enter here, leave your spiritual virginity behind because you're going into the place of the great waddling madam, the one of Revelation, the 17th chapter, that Jesus Christ of Nazareth says he hates. There is an image, there is a copy of the ancient Roman system. It is a religious government, and it is going to have great power. Now, on that 15th chapter where we were, it says in verse 2, I saw on that sea of glass, the one we saw in the 20th chapter, where there are thrones there that they are to be seated upon, them that had gotten the victory over the beast. Were there those who got the victory over the beast in the past? What was the government that put Peter to death? It was the beast. What was the government who put Paul to death? It was the beast. The government that put all those Spaniards and French and Swiss and others who were Vaudois or Valdensians to death during the Spanish Inquisition. It was the Holy Roman Empire using the power of the state, and they died in their hundreds of thousands. By that much, the United States of America in its many colonies, one of which was named Maryland, escaped state religion. By that much, other voices in government prevented George Washington from giving in to the many voices, some of whom even called him sire, from becoming royalty and passing on that kingly line to his son. By just that much, in Massachusetts, when they were burning witches, sometimes who weren't witches at all, but lonely widows with strange habits who owned property coveted by someone else, by just that much, religious freedom survived in the United States of America, and believe it or not, Quakers, Catholics, Lollardists, Valdensians, even people who didn't believe in religion at all, yes, and among them, here and there, some Sabbath keepers, managed to keep alive freedom of religion. And I can understand right down to the ground why it is that the Mormon Church holds the documents of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States with its amendments and so on as if they are at a sacred level, like they are divinely inspired or sacred documents. I don't know that God Almighty inspired them, but I know that he allowed them, and they certainly are a, an inspirational document and a, and a very valued, and you could say, I suppose, hallowed one in the history of the United States. If you really go back and study those colonies and how they struggled for the first hundred years before we ever became a nation, and some of the excesses that went on, of people who were publicly whipped. Have you ever heard of the ducking stool? Of people who would dare to say something that was sort of out of line with the religion of Maryland or Massachusetts? They're taken out of the public square, strapped into a seat that is on a great big log over a big vat of water, and men turn a crank and just hold them under it will nearly drown. And they're supposed to be ducked four times. If you were of any other religion than that particular colony, you were whipped through every village until you were put at the border and kicked out of Maryland or Massachusetts or the environs of Boston and told never to return again, and you bore the scars on your back until you were 85. 
and died of old age. They whipped them, and some of them they whipped to death. In the early colonies in the United States, there was an attempt by Catholics to take over this country, but there was also an attempt by the Anglicans, there was an attempt by the Quakers, there was an attempt by a lot of different religions. But eventually, and we can thank God for that, the founders of this country saw that religious freedom and tolerance had to be written into the law, or we would be living in a whole different country today. Now, in this picture that we see in the second and third verses, let's read it all, those that had gotten the victory over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty, just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. What should we do, brethren, in the future? If we want to avoid persecution, if we want to avoid a constituted authority, which eventually is going to govern this country of ours, not our own government of our own choice at all, when civilization comes apart and lies in fragments around our feet, when the Great Tribulation eventually begins, shall we adopt the Trinity? Shall we get a Greek scholar to write a very erudite paper that kind of toys with the idea that maybe it wouldn't be so bad because, after all, there is the Father and there is the Son, and we do read of the Holy Spirit. And after all, churchmen have argued about it for centuries, and it'll be argued long after we're gone, so maybe we shouldn't take such great issue with that after all. Maybe we shouldn't make statements like the Trinity is pagan to the core because that will get us in trouble. Maybe we should perhaps deny the efficacy of the stripes of Jesus Christ for our healing, and maybe we should not even pray to God for healing at all. Maybe we should say that we've already been born again and not make it a point of contention with some of the churches that talk about being born-again Christians. Maybe we should even say it's all right to keep the Sabbath in your heart. And once in a while, if a neighbor next door wants you to go to church and wonders about your religion, well, go on to church with him on a Sunday. There's nothing wrong with that. You can worship God in your heart every day. Maybe we should go underground spiritually. Maybe we should become a secret sect. Maybe we should take our name off the directory and out of the yellow pages and the sign off of the door of the gate out there and just say, private grounds, keep out. Maybe we should hide Maybe when I go on the broadcast and I warn about a United States of Europe, I will talk about a United States of Europe is coming. But let me tell you, my television audience, unless the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I'll see you right here, same time, same channel, in one week. Maybe I should really let them have it and just hint at the gospel. No, I don't think so. You know, I could read many, many scriptures, but let me just go to the 10th chapter of the book of Matthew right quickly, and then one more very brief one to conclude. In the 10th chapter of Matthew, Jesus said in verse 16, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be you therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves, but beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils and will beat you in their churches, in their synagogues. That's supposed to be a place of worship a place of succor and a place of sanctuary and a place of love and forgiveness, but they're making it into a whipping block. And you will be brought, and that means manacled. It doesn't mean invited. It doesn't mean red carpet. It doesn't mean banquets in your honor. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake. Why would you be brought before a king? Why would a king be upset about some poor person practicing his own private religion privately? Well, I suppose if he does it privately, deep underground, and if he puts a mantle around him that is so difficult to tell from anybody else that you wouldn't know the difference, then why would anybody ever get mad at you? If you're so benign, you're just plain vanilla right straight across the board. If they peel off the veneer and there's more veneer, and peel off more veneer and there's more veneer, they find out you're veneer all the way through. Then why would they hate you? You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake for a testimony against them and the nations. And when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what you shall speak. You don't need to practice that sermon. 
It shall be given to you in that same hour what you shall speak. For it is not you that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. Do you think Peter said anything at all before he died? Or did he go mute to the stake or whatever death awaited him? Did he have a final statement he made? What about Stephen? What did he say? I see heavens open and the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the Father on high. And they shut their ears and screamed in their rage. They couldn't stand what he was saying and stoned him to death. What did Paul say before he died? We don't know. What did other great men of God? James, the brother of John, son of Zebedee, who was beheaded and will be one of those given a crown and a robe to sit on a throne judging one of the twelve tribes of Israel as Jesus promised his disciples. And the brother shall deliver up the brother to death. I know of a church where families are split. That kind of gives me cold chills. Do you think a brother would betray a brother? And the father, the child. I know of a time in my life where that happened. And the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. I'm sorry, Dad and Mom, but I just couldn't help it. And you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But he that endureth to the end, whatever that end is, the end of your life or the end of your experience on this earth living until the time of the second coming of Christ in an instantaneous change, to the end, the end of your own private walk, the end of your own private personal destiny, shall be saved. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 and 10 to conclude. Just a quick little statement here and a little bit of a introduction that the Apostle Paul gave to the Corinthian church. Kind of interesting language. He says, We would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure. They were at their wit's end, above strength. They were beside themselves. Insomuch we despaired even of life. We didn't think we were going to get out of that situation alive, he said. But we had the sentence of death in ourselves. Interesting language. But we had, we already had, the sentence of death in ourselves. That we should not trust in ourselves the perpetuation of ourselves, the continuance of ourselves, the old age, the nice, pleasant way of dying, putting the glasses on the Bible and leaning back in the rocker. But he said, we had the sentence of death in ourselves. And finally, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God, which raiseth the dead, who delivered us from so great a death. Was it beheading? Was it being thrown to animals? Possibly. And does deliver, in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. Time and again, Paul escaped by the skin of his teeth when they tried to kill him. Once he was let down in a basket out of a wall and escaped. Once he was beaten so bad they dragged him out to the public dump and left his inert body there because they couldn't detect a pulse. That's what the man went through. Was he finally beheaded? Was he ripped up by animals? Who knows? How long did it hurt? A while. But you know the little light at the end of that tunnel the Apostle Paul saw was that translucent sea of glass, was that throne waiting for him with his name on it that said, this is reserved for Paul. And because of what he'd done, because there was never a moment he could forget the screams of a human being that he had been whipping on the rack and saying, curse God and die. He said, whatever God has in store for me, I will do with his help. And he did. I saw thrones, John said, and they sat upon them. And I beheld the souls of those who were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had gotten the victory over the beast, the image of the beast, the mark of the beast, and the number of his name. And if you are one who has difficulty getting time off to go to the Feast of Tabernacles, or who has difficulty finding a job, as every single Friday we get letters from people begging us to pray that they can have a job where they can have the Sabbath free. Then you know how difficult it is to live and to work, to buy and to sell, 
and to exist as a Sabbath-keeping member of the Church of God, worshiping God on the day he says, in a Sunday-keeping world with its name and its symbol of a great false church that is the great horror of Revelation 17. These prophecies are serious. I don't think anybody in this church wants me to go underground. I don't think anybody in this church wants me to water down my message. And I don't think anybody in this church wants to betray each other to some other constituted authority at some time in the future and say, he's a Sabbath keeper, but not me. Paul had the sentence of death in himself. He'd made up his mind. I don't care if it costs me my life, because that's the door. That's the light at the end of the tunnel that comes rushing forward, and suddenly I'm in the bright, brilliant kingdom of God, and the tunnel's behind me. That's the key. That's what helps me enter into God's kingdom. The moment of death, why fear that? Because what happens immediately after is the first day of the rest of forever. What's that worth? It's worth my life. It's worth your life. So let's have the sentence of death in ourselves. The sentence is death. And we don't worry about it. Who passes the sentence? Because we know we're going to live for all eternity in God's kingdom.